Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. When someone joins my team, I try to spend a fair bit of time with the expectation that you are not going to be here forever. I hope you are here as long as I can keep you, as long as our journeys kind of go together. But at some point, whether that be a year, three years, five years, you're going you're gonna to outgrow this. That's just the nature of work. And so I like to be really upfront about that. And I also like to prepare for that. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. The ultimate success of a manager is to grow someone out of your team and into the next phase of their career. But this notion to help someone grow with the expectation that they'll likely leave your team is pretty counterintuitive. Tara Ellis, engineering leader of animation content engineering at Netflix, joins us to share how you can facilitate the career growth of your team and the success of your company. Beyond Tara's framework to support the career growth of her team, we also cover things like how to help someone uncover if management is the right next step for them how to directly support skill acquisition like public speaking, and how you can help your company begin to adopt a culture and practice of supporting internal growth. At a time where many of us are worried about hiring demands, retention expectations, and the happiness and health of our teams, this conversation really hits home because it's ultimately about how to make a long-term investment in people in a practical, real, and tangible way. Enjoy our conversation with Tara Ellis. Tara, this conversation has been a long time coming. So we just wanted to first say, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you here. Thank you so much, both of you. Appreciate it. I know we have a couple of different things that we wanted to talk about. The first question I wanted to ask was, you have a counterintuitive perspective on managing your teams. And so I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about your perspective on growth and Mm. encouraging people on your team to move on. Because I think that element is something that at first glance, it's not like the quote unquote typical way like managers would say, oh, we want to keep teams, especially now when everyone's trying to hire. Bring us into your thought process and your management approach there. I tend to think about it as just really pragmatic. Everybody wants to grow in some way. And most people, you know, in order to do that sort of growth, they often, they can't stay in one place, right? I know this is the truth for myself. So why would it not be true for my team? And so I really try to normalize that. When someone joins my team, I try to spend a fair bit of time with the expectation that you are not going to be here forever. I hope you are here as long as I can keep you as long as our journeys kind of go together. But at some point, whether that be a year, three years, five years, you're going to you're gonna outgrow this. That's just the nature of work. And so I like to be really upfront about that. And I also like to prepare for that. So and I do that in kind of two ways. One is with my engineers is that I know you're going to want to grow. I want you to grow. So let's have proactive conversations about what that looks like for you. And that can run the gamut. Sometimes people, it's just really about skill acquisition. So like I had an engineer when I was managing a front-end team who really wanted to get more into mobile development, 
okay, so how do we give you opportunities to stretch kind of that muscle in a, in a space that you don't know about? That's something I would think about skill acquisition. I've had other engineers who are like, I'm really bad at public speaking. <laughs> I want to be able to, to hold like a conference talk and I don't know how to do it. Okay. Let's start with me and then we'll move to a team meeting and then maybe we'll move to an all hands and we'll work up to it. And then of course, you know, the proverbial, I want to be a manager, which is always like, do you know what we do? I mean, you think you might want that. And so that one's a little trickier, but in a, in a much longer process. But again, it requires some kind of forethought and effort. And so all of this really is predicated on the, this is going to happen. So why don't we just do it together? <laughs> you know? Confronting the inevitable in a right? really honest I like way. That. Confronting the inevitable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, is this a like a upfront expectation set in the first conversation? Yeah. When do you have that growth conversation? I don't do it right away. I usually wait the first quarter. Wait, let you get your feet mm-hmm. kind of under you. What I do like to do though is let them know it's coming. So when we've gotten to that stage, then I usually how I introduce it is like, "Hey, for the record, I'm someone who cares a lot about growth." And I think it's important and I think we should talk about it and we should be very explicit about it. So I want you to think about what are the areas, what do you want to grow? What do you want to learn? What do you want to do? I'm not asking for a five-year plan, you know, but what direction? I don't even know. Do you want to be a leader? Do you want to be a technical leader? Do you want to be a people leader? Do you want to just, I've had a lot of engineers who are like, I really just like doing what I'm doing. And I'm like, that's great. So think about that in our next one-on-one, I'm going to ask you. (laughs) So you have two weeks and it's okay if you don't know right away, but this is kind of the moment that we're going to start talking about this. One other thing that I think is also really important in this is I also really try to set the expectation that, hey, we are partners here. I'm not driving your career bus. I can't do that for you, right? But I can be an excellent navigator. I could tell you, oh, you should make that right over there. I don't think it happens as much with senior engineers. Generally, they kind of know what they want to do in some fashion. Some are really buttoned down and some are like, ah. But there has been times where they're like, I don't know, you tell me what to do. And I'm like, I can't really tell you what to do. I need you to, to tell me what you need and then I can support that. So I think it is actually really clear to get that expectation out so that they're not looking to me to kind of solve that for them. I'm a facilitator. When did this become a conscious priority for you as a part of your regular interactions with your team? Was there like a personal experience where somebody maybe had that explicit conversation with you? When did you realize like, this is the the important thing that I want to make sure every person I'm, I'm managing or leading has this conversation? That is a really great question. I, I don't know if I have, I don't know if I have one like originating point, but I guess I have just two things I would say. One is earlier in my career, I had the fortune of working in places where people in senior leadership identified me as someone to invest in. And so I remember I was working as maybe my second tech job and I had come in as a contractor and then I got hired on full time. And I'm a completely self-taught engineer. So I have a degree in international studies in German, but not but not coding, right? So I've kind of gone roundabout into this career. You're, you're home. J- Jerry's a geologist. Uh, or oh, a- nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I only find one other person that does the same. A geologist? Yeah, I'm a lot of people yeah. I talk to in, in, in our industry. I, ha- I know, I have a whole, I have my whole bias about that too. About the- <laughs> I was like, I think I'm a better engineer because I have that background. <laughs> but that's, ooh, spicy. But, you know, I remember sitting with, I was at a Christmas party 
And our director had sat at our table and we ended up talking with him. There's four of us for like an hour. And that's the first time I'd ever spoken to him. And and that was it. And then the, the Monday morning, there was this big hush meeting. There was like a new initiative that was starting. And at the last minute, I had gotten added to the invite. And I'm like, what is this? You know, my boss is like, why are you? I was like, I don't know. Like, I just, you know. And I remember kind of going on that we were going to totally build this whole new platform. It was, again, pretty hush. And my director turning to my boss and being like, she's smart. Find something for her to do on this, basically. Right. And so I've definitely had people intervene in my career. And so I think that for me is this is a certain way of paying that forward, having a predisposition to say, oh, how do I help you? I think a part of it is, too, I I haven't yet forgotten what it's like to be an individual contributor and kind of be flailing and not knowing that you're driven in a certain way, but you just don't know how to get there. And it's really just kind of a question of altitude. I can see more than my engineers and my directors can see more than me and the VPs can see more than them. Like when you look across the org and these things just don't happen if you don't have that kind of help. And so I don't think there was really just one thing. It's just kind of like this conglomeration of experiences that made me say, hey, I want to make sure I'm a multiplier for the people that I'm leading. It sounds like such a special moment where somebody like, calls out, she's really smart, give her something to do. I imagine like probably felt amazing in that moment. Or maybe terrifying, <laughs> I don't know, depending on your perspective. It was both. It was like, <laughs> well, you see me. How did you get that from one, you know, one dinner? And then also, oh God, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So to, I guess, reorient back towards the people on your team or the people you're working with, I think we're curious to learn about some of the different approaches that you take. So you shared a couple I wanted to dig into a little bit. So you mentioned somebody said, oh, can you help me with public speaking and speaking at a conference? So then what does that support look like? What's your approach to help their growth there? Public speaking in itself is something that's very near and dear to my heart because I absolutely abhor public speaking, yet it's something that I do and seem to be kind of okay at. But it's it really is around breaking it down into a series of steps and trying to understand. It's never, you're never going to like it, right? So like, but that doesn't mean you can't learn to do it. Mm how I started with one engineer on my team, where we started from, I was like, well, let's just talk about size. Being able to talk in a team meeting of 12 or 15 people is different than in all hands of 400 people. My first month at Netflix, I was asked to present in like a 400 plus all hands meeting. And at that point, I'd never done any like any real public speaking. I was like, what? So, so you don't want to start there. So generally I said, okay, why don't we in three months, you're going to come to the team meeting and you're going to present on something. Let's figure out what that is. We literally whiteboarded like a bunch of different topics. Like, what about this? What about this? What about this? Hmm. And said, this seems like a good one. This seems like something you want to talk about. Okay. So then I walked him through kind of how I prepare. I was like, you have to find the way that works for you. This is what I do. What I do is I generally, I always start with an outline. I need to I have a lot of thoughts and I need to organize them in some way. So I always start with an outline and I always start with the most important things. What do I want, what are the three things I want someone to take away from this conversation? No matter what I say, <laughs> whether it's a five-minute conversation or, or talk or a 45-minute talk, what are the three things? And then the whole talk is built around making sure that those things are con consistently reinforced, right? So we talked through what that might look like, what an outline might look like. You know, he's not an outline person, but I'm like, this is one way you could do it. I don't care how you do it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the thing is like, what you're really trying to get is clarity of thought. What are you trying to teach people? What are you trying to convey? And making sure you never lose that. Now, 
in a month, come back yeah. <laughs> with something. <laughs> and then let's talk. And then like, literally, like we would practice. First, we went through the content. Then we went through like the presentation and what have you. And when he felt a little more kind of comfortable. So I think it's good to, with this sort of stuff, to have an end date. You, you work backwards. Because if you don't, it'll just continue to go on. Having that forcing function is really helpful. That one is very easy to kind of break down structurally what you need to do. Mm-hmm. That's great. I think it kind of, then I imagine it's almost like you're, you're conspirators together in your one-on-ones. Like, okay, let's plot and plan how to prepare for this conversation. Absolutely. Together. Especially when you're like, it's different when you're talking about, sometimes I will start people off with like, present a project you did, right? Something where it's, it's a little easier mode because you don't have to think about how to create something of substance from the beginning. You already Mm -hmm. know why the thing you did was important. Now you're just kind of evangelizing it. Sometimes that's a good interim step, but he'd already kind of done stuff like that, which is why I'm like, let's figure out what you, what do you want the team to know, right? We ended up, he ended up doing a presentation on TV UI, which is kind of the operating system of the Netflix player on TV. We call it TV UI. And so my team at that time supported all platforms. So web, TV, and, and mobile. And he was one of the, TV engineers and he really loved the platform and, and there was like a lot of reticence from like the web people to work on it because they're just like oh god it's just really constricting so he wanted to kind of it's like no 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 this is why TV's great <laughs> you know developing on TV is great so I'm like then let's then you're passionate about it let's talk about that then besides public speaking are there other examples of skills that your team member came up to you they want to learn Outside of that stuff, definitely like more technical things. For example, like I said, I had an engineer who had been doing a bunch of web work also and had been doing, he kind of a little bit of a cheat, like had been doing some like React Native, but hadn't been doing like Native and uh, had really wanted to get more into Android development. So in that case, because he already had a bit of a background, even if it wasn't the, it was already 50% of the way there, then it was really about identifying a project he could work on. I think a lot of this, I, I didn't say this before, but I think when it comes to the technical acqu- skill acquisition, it also depends on like how much time that person has put in on their own before we've gotten here, right? When someone's starting from scratch, oh, I want to learn Rust, but I'm like a UI engineer. Like that's a little harder, right? For me to, <laughs> well, I will support that. And here's some classes you can, t- you know what I mean? But I don't, I can't, there's, we don't have projects like that, right? So that's a little harder for me to do. It's not impossible, but it, it is going to be, that's going to require kind of like the buy-in from another team, if at all possible. And then also depending on the project, sometimes people really can't, they can't onboard like that. In those instances, I actually had this happen in my current role. One of the members of my team really wanted to mentor engineers and I had a pretty senior team. And so mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of, of opportunity to do that, but we had a sister team where the engineer had been a Python developer and wanted to spend more time learning Java. So I ended up hooking them up. You're not going to be doing this at work, but this person wants to mentor and you want to learn. Why don't you guys set up, you know, some like weekly or monthly meetings and like work on a project together. Right. And they were both like, yes. A lot of times it really is just kind of connecting people. That's great. I love that the dot connecting component. Yeah. And so with the Android thing, what I ended up doing was there was a project I knew one of the sister teams was working on. And I said, look, I <laughs> like this person, you you already, he's kind of a known quantity for this other work. I think if bugs, small features, like if there's anything that you can give him to kind of to actually get some hours into this, that would be great. And I was like, I will loan him to you for a quarter to do that. So that's kind of what we did. 
So in a way, uh, what I take from that example is that roles or responsibilities and you need to do on a regular basis is to look out for other opportunities in terms of project, in terms of support, coaching, or people that can help some of your team members grow in ways they want it. Absolutely. I mean, I think I try to keep, it's a little, I know we haven't talked a little about leadership kind of growth because that one is the really hard one. But like in that realm, I do keep kind of a handful of other leaders that I know at different levels (laughs) that are kind of like on call for me. (laughs) Like where I'm like, hey, can you go talk? Can you meet with my engineer for a conversation about this thing or what have you? Because I, I can't remember if it was Laura Hogan or who, there was that Voltroning Your Manager article that kind of came out where there's the expectation that your manager can be all things is not, it's not really possible. So you should be able to pull from different leaders. And I I strongly believe in that, but I go one step further and I try to do it for my team. Here are the things I'm really good at and can help you. Here are the things I don't have experience, but that person does and they can help you. That next step is, I think, profound, like extending it just that next step further. So let's talk about like the, the leadership or management development. So you'd mentioned the very beginning helping somebody understand if they want to be a manager or to help them grow. What is, what's like your approach there? I know you were just talking about Voltroning your manager and helping spotlight those things. Are there other practices? I think the leadership one is by far the more difficult, complicated thing to do because there are a lot of people who want to be leaders who shouldn't be, right? Like, I mean, in the sense where it just kind of depends on where they are in their journey. I'm not saying for the rest of their lives, they shouldn't be, but for where they are right now, this is not going to be good for you, right? So really understanding and digging into motivations deeply in the beginning is the difference between really being able to help somebody or really being able to help someone avoid a lot of heartache. And what I mean is I remember having a conversation with an engineer um, who wasn't on my team, was on a different team, but had come to talk to me because right? mm-hmm. I had this reputation as, as, as someone who grows people and, and was interested in, in pursuing a manager role. And I remember asking, okay, why do you want to be a manager? There was a, a litany of reasons and none of them were people, <laughs> you know, oh, like not mentioned one time. And I just said, if people aren't somewhere in the top three, this, that's not the job you want. It doesn't mean that you don't want to be in a leadership role. It doesn't mean you couldn't be an architect or a principal or like have technical influence, but you said you want to be a manager. That is a different job. Because I remember one, one of the comments was like, I want to influence like this stuff. And I'm like, you're going to lose all of that. What's your, what are you thinking? No one's going to care what you think about that. Now, that's different, right? When you have mixed teams and stuff. But if you have like a bunch of super senior engineers, they might occasionally ask your opinion on like, this makes sense. But for the most part, that's not your job anymore. So a lot of that is really not shortcutting that. Because I do think a lot of, I think it's better for someone to get an opportunity to do different stuff like in that realm and decide they don't like it before they get into that role. So I'm a huge proponent. I've been trying to think about like a paper or something on this. I think every leader should be a tech lead first. Tell us more. Because I think you get 30% of the job. And if you like that, <laughs> right, then you can kind of keep going. So, so when I, I was at my first, I was my first tech lead role, I was at a startup where I still did, it was like four engineers. Like I did a ton of coding still. And I was definitely a really like the more traditional, like technical, like oversight. And then my second tech lead job, I was at Disney 
which was significantly larger. And the way managers and tech leads work at Disney, it's kind of like the manager role is an external facing role and the tech lead is the internal facing role. Mm. So resourcing, <laughs> project planning, like I did all of that. Like my manager didn't really do that, right? And he handled kind of the more career aspects and what have you, as well as the strategic you know, alignment for the team. So, you know, sitting down and so you're still dealing with people, right? Who's working on what? How are they proceeding? What should we prioritize? like doing all of that stuff, but you're not also necessarily dealing with the, this person's not performing. Like that's not all on you. This person should be fired or hired. You know, so you get a little reprieve from that or you get support from that, but you still have responsibility. And I think a lot of people, when they start dealing with personalities, realize, oh, that's a lot. Because <laughs> you know? every person's different and everyone's motivated differently. And I think when you don't have an opportunity to work on that stuff if the stakes are too high like it's not just you're impacting right you're impacting other people's lives i try to move very carefully through that i think navigating people challenges is really hard it's leverage a very different part of the brain and if someone does not have an innate curiosity about how people works yes it's going to be really hard for the person to be stay motivated and being able to navigate to a lot of new challenges. There's no ending to that. There are always going to be new people. There are always going to be new challenges. So I think the, the conversation you had with the person you mentioned have a transparent conversation about what being a manager looks like, what's your motivation, because neither party wants the other person to do something that is not, that's something they're going to regret. For sure. I mean, it's a thing you can learn. I also, that's kind of the other thing is everyone's kind of in a hurry. Maybe that's like my, because I'm on this side of this journey now, as opposed to just starting out in my career. But I try to tell people I was an engineer for a long time before I became a manager. My last individual contributor role is a staff engineer. I coded for, you know, 15 plus years. I was a tech lead for fun. I took a long time before I became a people manager. And a part of it was I just found people really challenging. <laughs> you know, I did, they just weren't the kinds of problems I wanted to solve. And I didn't make that shift until the people challenges became more interesting than the technical challenges. Like at a certain point after 15 years, as I like to tell people, I solved all of the problems I was interested in solving. I didn't solve every computer problem, but like at a certain point in the day, I'm like, I take things out of the database and put things into the database. <laughs> I do this across five different languages and platform, but at the end of the day, I take things out of the database, you know? And so, I mean, I still love technology. I'm totally a geek. Don't get me wrong. I still code for myself. But professionally, I just, I started to find, wow, why this person's so smart? Like, why are they struggling right now? I don't understand. Like, one day, that started to occupy my brain more. Once that happened, and I think that's the beauty of, that happened when I was a tech lead, right? So then I could, again, learn how to be better at those roles without adversely making the team pay for my learning. Because the reality situation is, every, I, maybe this is controversial, but every new manager is bad. <laughs> Sorry, like every first I cannot year, agree more on that. <laughs> <laughs> your first year or so, you're going to be a hot mess. <laughs> like, <laughs> I remember the first time I got to become a manager, I really committed to become a, a good manager to my own standard. And but a few years looking back, I made a lot of terrible mistakes. And the early mistakes really still haunting me because just people mistakes are really expensive. I am a very good manager. 
I was a very strong technical lead from the technical perspective. I was an awful people technical lead. I really used that time to learn to not be a micromanager and learn how to trust people and to learn that, oh, my job isn't to jump in and fix everything. My job is to, you know, allow people the space to go that way. And I'm so glad I did that, like I said, in a space where I wasn't over people because I think that I think that's rough. And so that jump, it's a hard one. And if you don't have someone kind of like supporting you as a new leader, like it's just to your point, it is costly. It is costly. So I I really try to dig deeply. But I think once I'm satisfied that, okay, like this is someone who's really trying to, I try to follow a very similar kind of systematic approach. We always start with, what do you think a manager does? And I think it changes, right? Depending on the company. I think how I managed at Disney is very different than how I managed at Netflix, right? I think at Disney, it was much more, I think, a traditional frontline manager, a lot of process, a lot of documentation, a lot of that kind of like, not a lot of ability to move what's happening around me, but can deal with my team. And at Netflix, I come here and it's, oh, I can't do anything really. <laughs> Like the sky's the limit. I was like, oh, this is a lot of this is a lot of power. What you know? I own my hiring process, right? I don't have a I don't have a, a, a department hand, handing me a bunch of resumes. They're like, hey, here's your recruiting partner. Go figure out what your pipeline is. Very hands on. Very. What is my team charter? What is my team structure? What is my team like? There's a lot of control in that way, and so that's been really great because it's allowed me to build the kinds of teams I want. But it was really shocking at first because I was used to a lot of training wheels, you know. Ironically, I, I had 25 people reporting. I had three teams, 25 people when I was at Disney. And then when I came to Netflix, my first team, I ended up building up. But initially, it was seven. And I remember them being like, oh, it's going to be seven people. Is that okay? And I was like, what? what? <laughs> that sounds great. And then it was like, those seven people were so impactful. <laughs> like, we could we produced so much. And we were like a quarter of the size. So, yeah, that was really helpful. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Follow up on my uh, first question. How do you help... As you said, first-time manager, always bad. But uh, as a manager of manager, when you start taking on other teams, how do you help the new managers, first-time managers, to yeah. make less mistakes with more support when they are in, they are challenged? That's a tough one because it's like that impulse to want to jump in and fix everything is still there. I feel... The transition from first-time manager to the first-layer manager to a second-layer yeah. manager is so challenging, probably even more challenging than the IC to manager transition because now you're managing a, someone that owns a team and it's just yeah. a very different dynamic. It's not just, I can manage a team, now I can manage two teams. It's not like that. Yeah. I think, I guess it's a couple things, right? I think one of it is 
If I'm dealing with someone who's more an experienced manager, so one of the teams I had at Disney, like that team had been around for a really long time. They're one of the first squads I had inherited them and the lead on that team. I mean, he didn't need anything from me, really. Like more of this is what we need to do. This is kind of what's happening. Like I kind of stepped in when I needed to, but for the most, I mean, they had been functioning pretty well and none of them were new. Like I was the new <laughs> portion of that. That was, I wasn't coming in with an inexperienced leader. When you're dealing with someone who's also a new leader, I think, so I have, uh, I, if you may have noticed, I, I tend to be pretty direct. <laughs> so I have the, you're going to be an awful manager in the beginning. Just accept it. Just lean into the humility. <laughs> you're going to be bad. Here are the ways with which you're going to be bad. Probably. They might be these over this and let's just work on them. Let's just see. The, the goal is not to avoid it because you're not going to, but the goal is to get through it as fast as possible. Right? So I love like, that distinction. That? That's great. And I think the thing is like, you know, you're always trying to find this balance between I see the stuff that's happening and do I need to throw out a bumper or do I need to be like, you're just going to have to, you have to run into the wall because that's actually going to impart the lesson. But I do try to care for everyone, right? I don't want the people who are like, again, who are on the other end of that to feel the brunt of that. But I also don't want to, you know, diminish like the learning that that the new leader needs to do. I, I actually just had this conversation with a colleague of mine who's on an old team and, and is working with a new manager. And she was asking me kind of, she's having this conflict with this new manager and then was saying, okay, I'm going to go to the director, right? Because she used to work for the director. So we're having this conversation and I said, what do you want to get out of the conversation with the director? What is the goal with that? And she's like, well, I mean, like he's worked with me before. So I, I just want to know what he thinks about this thing. And I said, okay, do you want to know what he thinks because you're trying to get better? Or do you want to know what he thinks because you want him to tell you that the manager's wrong? <laughs> right? Because mm. if that's what you want, that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> he's not going to that right like he's not gonna go and tell you that his direct report is wrong so what do you really want out of this <laughs> you know um and so she was like oh okay that's like a good point yeah I kind of I kind of want that I'm like well that's that's not gonna happen so but if you do want his opinion about the conflict I think you should approach it from the perspective of I don't understand can you please help me understand I value your opinion you're someone I reported to for two years help me understand not please tell me that your manager's wrong. <laughs> I was like, because that's not a thing that if he's a good director, he's not going to do that, right? He doesn't want to be in the middle of you two. You have to kind of sort that out. I have a, this is going to be kind of, a, not a, I guess not really a weird follow-up question, but I've noticed in, in a lot of these stories, like Tara, when you're mentioning directness, the way in which you've shared about communicating to me sort of evokes this like compassionate directness, where you're telling somebody something that may be like a difficult thing to to break to them. But when I hear it from you, I'm like, there's just so much compassion behind that. And like this intent that what whatever the feedback is, it comes from a place of trying to support and help that person. So I guess my question is like, how can somebody cultivate that? And so I guess the question's weird, because it's how do you cultivate compassion? But like, in the context of communicating directly, how can you help somebody cultivate like that more compassionate directness? Man, these questions are great. <laughs> Man, that's a really good, that's a good one. Um, wow, I have so many thoughts. I'm not sure if all of this is going to make sense, but... Let's roll with it. Yeah, I think the first thing is 
you have to be, like, I feel very strongly in authentic leadership. What you see is what you get. And it doesn't mean that I don't understand how I need to, like, maybe present in different audiences. Of course I do, right? Like, how I would talk to my peer versus my direct report versus my, my VP are very different things. Mm-hmm. But the through line is me. And no one is ever thinking they're not talking to me. There's just different facets of me. So I think you have to be yourself. That's number one. And people need to feel that what they're saying is who you are. And so... I really try to cultivate the expectation that I will not lie to you, right? Like I will, even when you don't want to hear it, I will tell you. And I will not lie to you does not mean I will tell you everything. Sometimes things are not appropriate to share. Sometimes things create churn and swirl, which are not helpful. But when I'm telling you something, it's coming from a place of caring about your well-being to make you better. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, depending, sometimes that happens out of just time. We built that. And sometimes it happens because like in those first couple one-on-ones, like this is who I am as a leader mm. and I will live up to this every time. And if you ever see me not living up to that, then I want you to tell me that. And so I think kind of having that bearing just tends to let me get away with saying stuff sometimes that other people can't say. One of my old bosses at Disney used to always laugh about that. He's like, you can go in a room and say, that thing is stupid. Why are you doing that? And people are like, you're right, Tara. And he's like, if I did that, everyone would freak out. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's know? what I'm trying to get at. Like, it's so apparent though, but it sounds like it just comes from a place of care. So it's like, that's magic. I think it's, I think it's, it's not shying away from that genuine vulnerability that like, hey, like we're all people here and we're trying to do the best we can. And we, none of us have eyes in the back of our heads and that's what we have to be for each other. I mean, I'm, not, I'm trying to think like, how do you cultivate that? I mean, think about your own empathy. Like just empathy is how you cultivate it. How did you feel when yeah. someone wasn't straight with you, right? Or when people had a, an opinion and they didn't tell you and you were walking around looking like an idiot. How did that feel? Why would you want anyone to feel that way? I really do believe my job is to make those around me better. I just don't, I just try not to shy away from things that do that. So I don't know if I have a full answer other than. Well, I think that question of like, how did you feel when somebody wasn't straight with you or direct with you or helped you in that way, I think is a really powerful reflection question when, because I'm thinking like, okay, in the context, this might be like giving somebody feedback or like trying to figure out a project decision. And so for me, it's okay, that's just like a good, like in your checklist of like preparing for that conversation, ask that first as you enter into it. So then I feel like that reduces the friction to not want to share directly in a way. Mm. So I really appreciate that reflection question. I think the other part is that how liberating that can be by just being comfortable being yourself. Absolutely. One of the stories that I know we wanted to talk about, you mentioned Netflix's pivot to focus on growing people internally and how that became a pivotal moment for for you. A lot of folks that we're talking with in, in different peer groups, one of the biggest things that came up, like how to hire right now in this environment, supporting people's career growth is like a key thing that people are looking for is they're looking for growth. So there's like this intent. Companies want to create internal cultures where it's supporting the internal growth of their team members with the gift at the end of the tunnel, which would be like retention and people stay longer. And so when I'm thinking about, okay, the person listening wants to figure out how to reorient their company culture towards support, supporting growth. So I was wondering if you could share us the story of Netflix's pivot to focusing on growth internally and what that experience was like for you. Because I know this was so something so important to you beyond your time at Netflix. When I started, I definitely, when I started Netflix in 2016, I was definitely a bit of an outlier, right? As someone who was very much growth, rah, rah, rah. And I don't think this is a bad thing or Netflix's fault. I mean, I think 
the what is it the warnings on the 10 i mean if you read you know the original culture deck especially right the the goal is we hire the best people at their roles and we don't grow people we hire the best people and then when it outgrows them then we hire the next best people and like you kind of know that's what you're dealing with anyway and so on the one hand i get that but i, I mean i just don't agree <laughs> like i just say like like even the best people still want to grow right that's how they got to be the best people i definitely felt like i was banging my head a, a bit against the wall like with my team it was great but trying to get kind of like-minded experiences from other leaders and support was a little harder in the very beginning. And as time has gone on, I think two things happened, like in my little circle versus in the company, right? In my little circle, I think um, other leaders started to see, oh, look at like Tara's team. Wow, they're like really great. They can do all this stuff and they whatever. And then there started to be more kind of interest in like, well, what's happening there? Like, how did, you know, how are you? I like to think I hire well, don't get me wrong, but I don't hire philosophy about hiring. But I don't hire perfect people out the door. So the thing is like, hey, you, you grow. And so we started having those conversations and I started kind of seeing the ice melt. But then I think organizationally, like Netflix has gone through this, you know, big period of hyper growth. When I started, it was like, 4,000 people, that's 4,000 people. And now it's 10, 11,000 people in a pretty short time. You know, you're going to suck up all the best pretty quickly. At the next stage, it becomes, we have to grow the best because we we can't hire any more of the best. And I should say, these words are mine. <laughs> these are not like Netflix's words, but this is my take on like the philosophy of what happened there. And like that realization of, okay, we're big enough now that we kind of have to shift this stuff. Additionally, as you alluded to, Patrick, people want to go to places where they feel like they can actually continue to blossom. Mm -hmm. I mean, the purpose and beauty of a big company, you know, I spent seven years at Amazon. I didn't work on the same team the whole time I was there. I worked on four teams, right? Like it's big enough that I could move and still grow and stretch different things and do stuff like that. And if you're going to come to a company this big, you want to be able to do that. I was actually really impressed with once that kind of decision was made organizationally, like how quickly, like everything shifted. Netflix is really good at, oh, we've decided to do this thing and now we're like full board. And so it went from the like, well, Tara's kind of odd to I'm now on a working group, right? Across like a bunch of different organizations to sit down, like figure out how should we do this? The first stage of this was, there are leaders who are really good at growing people and there are leaders who are not good at growing people and they've never really learned how to grow people. So let's start there. We have to first start with teaching some leaders that like, hey, this is what it means to grow your people, right? And so we ended up, the working group I was on ended up kind of focusing on that and doing things, evaluating a, a different set of growth systems, which our HRBPs ended up deciding on, hey, this is the framework we're going to use. And we actually came up with a bunch of tactical, actionable, literal scripts about like, if you're going to have a conversation about management, this is a way this could go. If you're going to have a conversation about skill exercise, this is a way it could go. And really about a series of questions to ask. I know it probably sounds crazy, but you know, you assume these things are obvious, but they're not. Right. Yeah. And so telling someone like, you should be asking this question and asking this question, asking this question, literally like writing these decision trees. And so rolling that out. Well, that's why you're on the working group is to, yeah. I guess, quote unquote, operationalize that knowledge or that practice. Yeah. I really liked it too, because it was managers and ICs. It wasn't yeah. just managers. Mm. I thought that was awesome. That was really great. So I worked with like our, my particular pet, we picked different topics and it was me and two ICs. And so we were, the role play was actually really genuine. Yeah. So I, I think we want to acknowledge a couple of things here. I think first off, like I, I appreciate kind of the distinction, the infamous like Netflix culture deck was it's not like a question of what's the right approach or wrong approach, but rather it, to me, it seems like a difference in optimization. There's like a conscious mm. choice. We're optimizing our culture for this. And then that's yep. then what the, 
practices or operations of the company then orient around. And then I think what's so interesting is like what you're highlighting is like there's this really murky space where I think people within a company have to ask the questions of like how or when should we shift our approach? And that to me is such a big gray area because I think a lot of people like we want to develop, grow and develop our team, but when does that become the thing we optimize for versus quote unquote hiring the best? And I think that's such a gray area because it doesn't seem like there's a really clear signal for when you should change that approach. The grayness of all of that around culture, which is so murky. It is. You, you just made me think about something because it's, I've had this debate with every team I've managed right? Um, around hiring and especially at Netflix. I mean, we have actually more centralized hiring now, but for most of the time I've been here, it's actually been pretty bespoke. That murky area of getting my engineers to understand that the best can be lots of things, right? The best Sure, it can be the major league player that you're just transferring from one team to the other, or it can also be the minor league person that you signed up to develop, and then they come up to the major leagues. And I think I've always, as I like to say, fours are easy, right? It's easy to find someone who nails the interview. It's harder to find someone who's a two, who was a two, but is actually a four. Hmm. And those are the people I want to find because those are the people that have been passed on and, but they actually not, it's not that they can just do the job. They can excel at the job, but they're missing this gate, but then still having to deal with, okay, are we lowering the bar? I'm like, no, I don't think we're lowering the bar, but we're recognizing the bar is much wider than you think it is. Not everyone took your path. I feel really happy about having an engineer on my team who did, you know, well, like I think the comment would be good, good, not great like on the interview, but there was definitely something there. And I also just really felt like, ah, there's something stuck in my craw about this person and and I'm going to move forward with it. And like within three months, I have other people from, on my team come like, oh my God, this person's amazing. Like, they're so good. They're so, and like internally, I'm like, aha, <laughs> I told you. That's what the something was there. I would rather make the false positive. I would rather do that than to to like, to arbitrarily turn someone down and then for something that doesn't matter, it just doesn't matter, right? And they could have killed that job. And interviews is such an arbitrary thing in some sense as well. It's just not like even close to perfect process to, to know when someone is qualified or not. It's just a sad fact that that's not effective. I mean, there's definitely like, it's funny. So I spent a lot of time calibrating with engineers who, who roll onto my to my interview loops. And so in the beginning, I usually am like, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I care about. This is what I want you to evaluate. And then it then starts the long, painful cycle of they've interviewed, I've read their feedback. Maybe it's three sentences. And then I'm like, that's not, that's not helpful. <laughs> you know? And then I have to come and talk with them and say like, we'll have a conversation. Like, great. What you just said to me, that's what I want you to write. I have a joke, right? That's like, you know, our scale is like, yes, no, or leaning. Yes, leaning. No. And so I'm like, if you're leaning either way, then you're telling me you want to talk to me. <laughs> so, so, so I will come and say, so why yes or why no? That's what, you know, so my, my joke is like, you don't want to talk to me. I should be able to read that in the feedback. This is how you write feedback that's actually helpful for what I'm evaluating. I had one, one engineer on my team who was, we were just starting to go through this process. Super smart guy, really great. He cared a lot about time. It took this person like five minutes longer to just sort this thing out than, than the other thing. And it, it was like a couple interviews before I was like, okay, cool. 
maybe by the third interview, I said, you seem to care a lot about time. And he said, well, yeah, you should be able to do this in this time frame. And I said, do you think they were able to do it? You think if they, if it took them 10 minutes longer that they would have gotten there? He said, yeah. And I'm like, that's what I care about. I don't care. I understand you care about that. And I'm not trying to tell you don't care about that, but I don't care about that because we don't have that kind of job. Like I've had jobs where it's like, I have a pager and we have to get something done. I'm like, that's not what we're doing here. Right. So this scenario that you're evaluating in this against is artificial. They're not going to design <laughs> a service in 45 minutes or the company's going to fall apart. So like what I, five minutes or 10 minutes. Now, if you're telling me that they couldn't get there, that's different. That's yeah, that's a problem. We need you to be able to do this, but if they didn't get it in the time that you care about. So that yeah. calibration, that constant, like, this is what we care about. This is what we care about. This is what we care about. And then eventually they start to care about that stuff too. And then they become really sharp, you know, and they can read between all the lines and figure out who will work and who won't. Fantastic. So the question I would ask you, Tara was, so the context is, for this leader and their company making the shift to more orient towards supporting the growth of their team. I was wondering if you had any like final tactics to help them with that step one, like with that first step on where to start. And so can you, are there any kind of final tactics you want to share to make that shift? Here's what you would recommend. Oh, I just had, (laughs) sorry. My first thought was the first thing I would ask them is, do you like growing people? I was like, don't say that, Tara. But it's true. Because if you don't, then like there might be a different conversation to be had. Maybe that's not something you should be doing. So, but I guess the tactic, I mean, I like the idea of whether someone likes it or not, getting their buy-in that it's important and then what it might look like and then having really clear expectations and clarity on what success is here. Really like defining, I think you used the word operationalize before, like really defining that I think is really important because it's just going to, it's going to be so squishy for so many people. So for the person who wants to be a manager, helping them do public speaking, they're not going to look at that as a growth activity, you know? So I think trying to get as much black and white into that as possible. And then I think the other thing is recognizing and admitting when you've gone as far as you can go. Right. So, so I had an engineer on my team who I spent a fair bit of time working to become a manager, who is a manager who has been a manager now for a couple of years. And it was really great. But, you know, we eventually got to a place where I'm like, there's nothing more that I can do for you here. Like you now need to just go get the job and like, I can help you get the job, but you have to leave this team. You, <laughs> you have finished the course. <laughs> you know? And so how do we do that? That's what we need to focus on now because there's, this is a finite loop, right? It's not going to, and knowing when it's time to just say that it's, you know, what I have to help you is is done. And now we need to move you on to whatever that next step is. So I guess if I could summarize that. That's the um, ultimate success of a team manager. They grow someone out of your team. They go graduate. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of like, I, I like the jokes. And I'm just like, you know, ah, like I'm just always trying to get you know, and you're done. Go on, move on to the next thing. You know, um, I'm glad to hear you say that. I know a lot of managers don't feel that way. Well, thank you, thank you, Tara. This has been such a fun conversation. We've got a couple rapid fire questions to to wrap this up. Sure. Okay. What are you reading or listening to right now? Oh gosh, what am I reading? I'm well. I'm doing both. I'm reading and listening. Nonfiction. I'm even though I have this physical designing data intensive applications. 
I am actually listening to the audiobook <laughs> <laughs> of it because I don't have a lot of time. So I've been reading that. I'm not that far into it, but I've actually been, I've never read a technical book kind of on an audiobook. And I've, I'm really impressed with how, how they, I'm like, wow. <laughs> I've been impressed with that. So that's that's my nonfiction book. And then I've been reading this book called Conspiracies in this series of novels. It's I just started reading them for fun. They're this repairman Jack novel. I like I like have you ever heard of the Dresden Files? Like it's kind of yeah. like urban fantasy magic stuff. I think that stuff's really fun, but I can't that uh, that can't hand, handle his, his writing is awful. So so I was like I was like, great premise. You are the worst writer ever. So I was like looking for, if you like this, you'll like that. And someone recommended this repairman, Jack. I think the author is F. Paul Wilson. I'm on the third book in two weeks. Like they're great. And they're just popcorn books. And so they're really fun. And I also listen to them. So That's great. I, yeah, I, I need some, I need a popcorn book sometimes to tune out. So, or not tune out, <laughs> yeah. tune in, so to speak. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's a methodology, but I was thinking about the concept of, or the maybe it's like authentic leadership, that whole kind of philosophy, because I felt like it finally named what I did and who I was. Like I always kind of felt like a bit of an outlier as a leader. And I didn't feel like I had a lot of like, this is just kind of how I've always done it. And I feel like I feel pretty passionate about it. And then I remember I was doing this conference talk on how to build high performance teams. And I was doing research on like, and I stumbled onto this. I can't remember the name. I, I can see the guy's face, but I can't remember the name. And, it, and I remember being like, oh my God, this is my leadership style. This is it. <laughs> and it was finally like a, a confirmation that I wasn't just crazy and weird. Yeah. So, so yeah, so that, I lean into that wholeheartedly. Your how to build high performing team talk is really great. So we'll definitely oh, add that you. for folks to, to jump in and check out. <laughs> this is a trend question. What's a trend you're seeing or following that's interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? Oh, no, I'm not very trendy any, anymore. Does it have to be a technical trend or just or any sort of trend? It can be any sort of trend. We've had we've had um, folks talk about crazy hard tech. We've had folks talk about nu- micronuclear plants. Like, <laughs> can I talk about board games? Absolutely. <laughs> like it's just peeking into the into into the public consciousness i've been a hardcore board gamer for about seven or eight years i own 600 board games i fly to texas once a year for board game geek convention they're amazing and especially for someone who spends all my days on screens being able to have something that's so crunchy brain wise but is and also still like tactical like haptic like you know you're it's just it's great. And so I think more people are, I keep seeing articles show up in the Guardian or the New York Times or what have you. And like things, games are starting to show up in Target and Walmart. And I'm like, yes, modern designer board games. That's the trend. Jump on. <laughs> is there, I'm not going to ask you what the best one is because that sounds like there's like, a, but if, if there's, oh, so you know, like... roll out one, not the best, but like one that's top of mind. I had to ask. That was, uh, that's an incredible recommendation or spotting a trend. I know. I was like, oh, God. It's funny because you can't see, but all the stuff that's on the top shelf, those are actually board games. Yep. They're, just, yep. they're the small box ones. Yeah, I don't have, I don't think I have all a, right. I don't think we I We can avoid care. the trap to let you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, for how many players? For yeah. what weight would you like it? <laughs> so last ones there quick. What's your favorite or most powerful question to ask or be asked? Oh, gosh. I wish I'd seen these before. I know I had them. I didn't even notice them in the doc. I wish I had because I was like, oh, I would have thought about this. <laughs> um, I think my, 
I think my most, I would say my most powerful question that I ask, that I think that, that I like to ask is, what's going on for you right now? And just silence. I mean, it's really interesting what people will say. If you're like, how you doing? It's hard to, or how are you doing? Or what have you? It's easy to fall into like, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm okay. But this one, I try to bypass that a little bit. Like, the subtle distinction sort of breaks the <laughs> pattern for like people's normal response, that kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So I like to think that, how I ask it and then also saying nothing else is this is permission for you to really tell me, you know, that's powerful. I'm asking so I can help. <laughs> I, one of my favorite quotes is uh, was, the next question is going to be final quote to leave us with. But one of my favorite ones is it's not about what you say, but it's about how you say it or like people don't remember what you do. They remember how you make them feel. That's, I think that's the, the real one. And I think how you ask that question matters. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's what resonating with you right now to, to send us home? Um, this is an intensely personal to me quote, but it was from my grandmother who I was very close to, who used to always tell me over and over again, don't let anyone tell you what you can and can't do. And I, I, I move through the world in a way that there are a lot of people who have a lot of opinions about what I can and can't do. And if I allowed any of that for any second to cloud my judgment, I wouldn't be where I am. And so I never forget that. That's, that's great. Thank you for that data. But I'm still going <laughs> to do this. I'm still going to go find out some stuff on my own. Thank you. So don't let anyone tell you what you can and can't do. Tara, thank you so much for an incredible and fun conversation and really in a way to enable people to be compassionate about others and to support their growth and something that's so important. I feel the same. This was super awesome. It didn't even feel like, a, I just feel like we were just having, I felt like we should have had drinks and dinners. I mean, it was just like <laughs> so lovely. I hope this helps some people. I'm, I'm pretty passionate about it. So thank you for the opportunity. Here's a quick recap of our takeaways from our conversation with Tara Ellis. Most people want to grow in some way. That means that at some point, they'll likely need to move on from your team. So you might as well be proactive with supporting their growth and prepare for it. Here's Tara's framework for how she approaches those career growth conversations. First, let your new direct report get adjusted to their role in the first quarter. From there, set the expectation that you're someone who cares about their growth, and then prime them before having a growth conversation by sharing that you want to talk about where they want to grow or what they want to learn. Give them one to two weeks to think about it, and then focus your next one-on-one -on, -one on their growth. Set the expectation that your partners, but they're responsible for driving their growth. You're there to support, but they're the driver. Here's a little bit more about your role as the manager supporting their growth. As that manager, you have a higher level and more broad visibility across the company. So your role is to look out for the opportunities, the projects, or the coaching to support the growth of the people on your teams. Another way to support this is share the things that you're good at share the things you're not good at, and for next level impact, share a person who is good at all of the things that you're not good at that can help them. How can you help someone understand whether they want to or should be an engineering manager? First, understand their motivations for why they're interested in management. If people isn't in the top three, it might not be the best fit. Give people responsibilities and opportunities to try the management work before taking on the role to see if they even like that type of work. For a longer-term experiment, becoming a tech lead is a great launching point because it also gives a smaller sample of management work. How do you help first-time managers make less mistakes? Be compassionately direct with them, that you don't expect them to be perfect. In fact, you know they're probably going to be bad at first. 
The goal is not to avoid being bad, but to get through it as fast as possible and then work together to make that happen. To cultivate more compassionate direct communication, before heading into a feedback conversation, imagine a time when someone wasn't honest or straight up with you, how that made you feel, and the impact that had on you. Having that in mind before that conversation will help you develop more compassion going into the conversation and make being direct a little bit easier. To help shift your company to focus more on growing people internally, if possible, start by gathering insights and practices from people that are already really good at growing their teams internally. You can use those insights to develop core scripts or frameworks for how a conversation about management or skill acquisition should go. Then teach people who never learned how to facilitate a career growth conversation how to do it. Set expectations throughout all of the management that part of their core responsibilities is to support their team's growth and have that expectation be reinforced from the top down. The ultimate success of a manager is to grow someone out of your team and into the next phase of their career. Make sure that that growth is explicitly valued. Set really clear expectations that define the relationship and responsibilities in that growth conversation. Create clarity with what success looks like and then step back and take pride in the impact that your support has had on someone else's career. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.